When 1 Kings chapter 12 becomes a reality, we see the nature of sin and how it divides mankind and how it divides the believers who follow after God or who at least claim to or supposed to and what results when men begin to take upon themselves too much authority and pull away from God's plan. The kingdom of Israel was divided and God does not let us forget the nature of that sin. Out of the north, 19 kings came to power. Of those 19 kings, 15 times the scripture says, he followed in the ways of his father Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. In the south, 19 kings also existed and came to power. But of those kings, some of them were righteous, as has been stated many times from this pulpit. In 1 Kings chapter 17, I'm sorry, excuse me, 2 Kings chapter 17, if you would turn there. Many things have transpired between 1 Kings 12 and 2 Kings 17. But we've come to the end of the national life of the northern kingdom of Israel. Hoshea, the son of Elah, has come to power and will be the last king in Israel. Ahaz is king in Judah at this time. 2 Kings 17 verse 7 says, For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they had feared other gods and had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel which they had made. God takes their minds right back to what he had done for them in Egypt. Back to where Israel was born, as it were, and tries to remind them, reminds us of what had happened in all of that time. Verse 13 says, Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all of his prophets, every seer saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear but stiffen their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. Verse 16 continues, So they left all the commandments of the Lord their God, made for themselves a molded image and two calves, made a wooden image, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served Baal. And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft and soothsaying, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel. And remove them from his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. Turn over now to chapter 20 if you would. We see the environment in which our lesson this evening begins. That of division, that of strife, that of uh, distinction and being away from God. Judah, Israel has gone into Assyrian captivity and Judah refuses to follow what God wants them to do as well. 2 Kings chapter 20 begins, In those days Hezekiah was sick. Now Hezekiah is a king in the southern kingdom of Judah. 
who have, have still maintained at least some sense of, of freedom at this point. Hezekiah was a righteous king. He began to reign at 25 years old. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, according to uh, 2 Kings 18. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Mo had commanded Moses. Hezekiah becomes sick. And chapter 20 begins with these words, In those days Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days fifteen years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Now skip down to uh, verse 14. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? He had men that came and visited to him, visited with him. What did these men say and from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They came from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. Hezekiah's pride got to him. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, verse 16, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And so sets the stage for our lesson this evening. Turn now, if you will, with me to chapter 23, 2 Kings 23. In chapter 22, King Josiah was eight years old and he reigned 31 years. He comes to power in, in Judah. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And we see the things that he did about taking down the high places and, and destroying the idols and getting rid of idolatry and reforming the worship of God back to its, uh, restoring it back to what it should have been. But in chapter 23, beginning in verse 26, <clears throat> despite all of this, the people had not turned their hearts back to God. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger was aroused against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh, the previous king, had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my side as I have removed Israel and will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, 
king of Egypt went to the aid of the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates and King Josiah went against him and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo when he confronted him. Then his servants moved his body in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to, to Jerusalem and burned him, buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, anointed him and made him king in his father's place. Now, Jehoahaz was the 16th king in the south. He was 23 years old, verse 31, when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Now Pharaoh Necho put him in prison at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Then Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in his place, of his, in, the, in the place of his, of his father Josiah, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Pharaoh took Jehoahaz and went to Egypt, and he died there. So we have another, uh, we have Jehoahaz at 23 years old, who was uh, set up by the people and become, became king in Judah. He was a 16th king. Pharaoh took him away and put in his place Eliakim, who he renamed to Jehoiakim, who became the 17th king. He was 25 years old, verse 36, when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebuda, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all his fathers had done. In his days, chapter 24, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, speaking of Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years, and he turned and rebelled against him. So we have the nation of Judah with a puppet king in place, basically, who had now owes allegiance because of the actions of Pharaoh Necho from Egypt. He now owes allegiance to the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar who had come in and taken power. Nebuchadnezzar's father was uh, Nabopolassar, I think it is. I'll clear that up in just a moment. We'll talk about it more. Jehoiakim, the king of Judah at this point, became Nebuchadnezzar's vassal for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans, bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, and bands of the people of Ammon. He sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servants, the prophets. Remember what we talked about earlier? How Hezekiah had been prophesied that his descendants, Isaiah came to Hezekiah and said, your descendants, uh, basically the house is going to be taken away from you. All of these things that are here present are going to be taken away. And your descendants are going to be made eunuchs in the house of another king, in the, in the king of Babylon. Chapter 24, verse 3. Surely at the commandment of the Lord this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also because of the innocent blood that he had shed. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim rested with his fathers. Then Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his place. Now that's the 18th king of the south. And the king of Egypt did not come out of his land anymore, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. And basically from uh, the, the Sinai Peninsula all the way across the land of modern-day Israel and Jordan over to modern-day Iraq and Babylon. 
Nebuchadnezzar had taken all of this in the battle of Carchemish. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. Now, basically what we've done is set the stage for Daniel to enter the picture. Now if we turn over to Daniel chapter 1, we pick up the rest of the story. Judah is falling rapidly into a state of disarray on God's bidding because of Manasseh's great sin. Isaiah had prophesied to Hezekiah that this was going to take place, and now we see the fruition of it. Daniel, being taken as one of the first captives into Nebuchadnezzar's household, well, let's read Daniel chapter 1 and, and pick up the rest of the story there. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, which we just read about, with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. <clears throat> then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants, and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those the sons of Judah, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Think of this for just a moment. You're a young person, somewhere around the age of 17, and you've lived all of your life in faithfulness to God up to this point, but God brings condemnation upon your nation. Think of it here in the U.S. If you're a young person in this audience tonight, think of what would happen if, say, Russia or China were to come over and to take control of the United States. And they said, this decree is going to go out that we're going to take all of the finest young people in this nation. We're going to take them back to wherever they came from. We're going to make them our servants. We're going to indoctrinate them into the culture and the language and the literature of our home nation. We're going to convert them into Chaldeans, as it were. Think about how young minds are impressionable. You think about what goes on in our universities and colleges nowadays. It's exactly what's happening right under our noses in our own nation. Socialism is being taught. Communism is being taught in our universities. Being heralded as the great salvation of our nation. That we should come under its influence. That we should fall to it. This is the environment in which these young men were pulled. They'd been taken captive. 
And they were going to be castrated. And then they were going to be put into the college of literature and language, taught a different language and, and taught the history of the, the Chaldeans. Every builder of a massive structure will tell you how important the foundation is. Nebuchadnezzar was a smart man. And he knew that the foundation for his taking captive the rest of the world would be to build upon this foundation, to get to the young people at an early age. And so that's exactly what he did. No king in recent or ancient history has excelled Nebuchadnezzar in his ambition and his magnificence of the scope of his work. His influence was known throughout the world of that day. We look at Halley's handbook and give a, get a description of the city of Babylon. The scene of Daniel's ministry was the wonder city of the ancient world. Situated in the cradle of the human race near the Garden of Eden, built around the Tower of Babel, first seat of the empire, a favorite residence of Babylonian, Assyrian, and Persian kings, even of Alexander the Great. A commanding city through the whole pre-Christian era, Babylon was brought to the zenith of its power and glory days, uh, glory in the days of Daniel by Nebuchadnezzar, who was Daniel's friend, and who during his 45-year reign never wearied of building and beautifying its palaces and temples. Ancient historians said that its wall was 60 miles around, 15 miles on each side, 300 feet high, 80 feet thick. It's extending 35 feet below the ground so that enemies could not tunnel under it. Built of bricks that were one foot square and three to four inches thick, a quarter of a mile of clear space existed between the city and the wall all the way around. The wall protected uh, by wide and deep moats or canals filled with water. 250 towers existed on the wall guard rooms for soldiers, 100 gates of brass. The city was divided by the Euphrates River into two almost equal parts, both banks guarded by brick walls all the way. With 25 gates connecting streets and ferry boats, one bridge on stone piers, a half a mile long, 30 feet wide with drawbridges which were removed at night, a tunnel under the river, 15 feet wide and 12 feet high. Excavations of recent years have to a large extent verified the seemingly fabulous accounts of ancient historians. It's hard to imagine a city like that today. And yet this city existed and its ruins have been found. The great temple of Marduk or Bel adjoining the tower of Babylon, Babel, was one of the most renowned was the most renowned sanctuary in all the Euphrates Valley. It contained a golden image of Bel and a golden table which together weighed not less than 50,000 pounds. At the top were golden images of Bel and Ishtar, two golden lions, a golden table 40 feet long and 15 feet wide, and a human figure of solid gold 18 feet high. You think about that. There's a table in there that's half the width of this, this auditorium and as long as the auditorium, and a golden figure, a statue that's two feet higher than this ceiling. Solid gold. Truly Babylon was a city of gold, as Isaiah calls it in chapter 14 and verse 4. The city was very religious. It had 53 temples and 180 altars to Ishtar. Nebuchadnezzar's palace was one of the most magnificent buildings ever erected on earth. 
Its, va its vast ruins were uncovered by Coldaway, who was a German archaeologist, between the years of 1899 and 1912. The south walls of the throne room were 20 feet thick. The north side of the palace was protected by three walls. Just north of them were more walls 50 feet thick. A little further on still more massive walls. About a mile further out was the inner wall of the city, which consisted of two parallel walls of brick, each about 20 feet thick, 40 feet apart, the space between them filled with rubble, making a total thickness of 80 feet, with a deep and wide moat on the outside. Further on was the outer wall, built in the same manner. In the days of ancient warfare, this city was simply impregnable. The, hang the hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, built by Nebuchadnezzar for his Median queen, beautiful daughter of Cyaxerxes, who had helped his father conquer Nineveh, on several tiers of arches, one over another, each bearing a solid platform, 400 feet square, terraces and top covered with flowers, shrubs and trees, garden on the roof, watered from a reservoir at the top to which water was raised from the river by hydraulic pumps. Underneath, in the arches, were luxurious apartments, the pleasure ground of the palace, built while Daniel was chief governor of the wise men of Babylon. The German archaeologist Coldaway uncovered these arches in the northeast corner of the palace, which he thought were the hanging gardens, and it shows a photograph of that. Processional Street, the great and royal sacred road, entered at the north, gradually ascended, passed into the palace grounds at the northeast corner, through the Ishtar Gate, and high over the center of the city, gradually descending to the southeast corner of the Tower of Babylon Wall, where it turned directly west to the river bridge. On both sides were highly defensive walls 20 feet thick, adorned with brilliant, many-colored glazed reliefs of lions. The street was paved with stone slabs three feet square. Near the entrance to the palace, the blocks are still in their place just as they are, just as they were when Daniel walked over them. Such a magnificent city, and yet its destruction is foretold. Imagine this kind of environment into which a young person is being brought. How much of an impression that may have on a young mind. How grand and splendid a city this would be. One that was heavily fortified. One that had impressive walls 300 feet high. 15 miles on each side. Solomon's kingdom was but a small localized regency compared to that of Nebuchadnezzar who held no reservations about the scope of nations that he could or would overtake. It was into this grandeur that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were introduced as young, handsome, strong men. And yet, being resolute, they were not impudent. They did not court persecution, but they went to work with the gentle courtesy which is always becoming a companion of firmness. And we see that throughout Daniel's life as he interacts with the first here we mentioned about the chief of the eunuchs and how Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies and that he gained favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And then later on as he befriends Nebuchadnezzar, as we'll read in just a moment. Daniel was loyal Despite the circumstances in which he had become, uh, become embroiled, he was loyal to his idolatrous king, even to the point of being trusted with the affairs of the empire. Can we say that same thing about us today? 
When we think about the environment in which we are, if we're faced with uh, the sort of persecution that threatens us on every side, Satan's darts that are continually hurled at us, do we face, say for instance, in the, in the case of Philemon, Onesimus, a runaway slave who should have been killed for all practical purposes because he broke the law. He ran away from his master, Philemon. Paul says, perhaps we met for this purpose, basically that the word of God might be spread, that God would be praised in all of this. Treat him as a brother when you take him back into your fold. That even in the face of circumstances like that, Onesimus was still to treat his master Philemon with reverence and with respect. That's what Daniel did. That's what he, he had the mindset. He purposed in his heart beforehand that despite his circumstances, he's going to follow the God of heaven. How many young people do that today? Let's look at the magnitude of Daniel's good character and the influence that it had. We see what was going on here in chapter 1 that uh, the, he had gained favor with the goodwill uh, and goodwill with the chief of the eunuchs there in verse 9. And then we skip down to verse 18. Verse 17, As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of days... When the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Before they served, before the, therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. That's approximately 70 years later. And about five kings further on. We read then in chapter 2 about Nebuchadnezzar's dream and how that Daniel uh, reveals, uh, God reveals the nature of this dream to Daniel and Daniel then uh, gives the interpretation there in, chapter, in verse 16. Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was, was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Now look at Daniel's attitude towards God. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. Verse 27, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts come, came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. 
but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. And he elaborates upon this image about the successive kingdoms that were to follow. Imagine that you're a young man and you're here in this, you, this massive city. You, you're following or you are serving at least at the feet of this king who is one of the greatest in the world that the world has never seen before. A king who has the ability to take your life from you at a moment's notice. And yet you still have the, the character and the clarity of mind to stand before him and give God the praise to give God all of, the, uh, all of the credit for what, is about to, what he is about to tell him. And then in the face of that, you're actually going to tell Nebuchadnezzar about his own downfall. How many young people would be willing to stand before Trump or before uh, Putin or before some other nation's leader and tell them, your nation's going to fall and here's how it's going to happen? I dare say not many of us have that kind of courage. Not many of us have the fortitude to be able to, even as adults, stand up. And, and this is not the only time that Daniel does this. We'll see in just a moment. He does it again and again. What kind of a young person does it take to do that? Think about the significance of those kind of temptations facing a young person. Even an adult at this point would have trouble facing the kind of of position, the power and the authority at which he had been placed. And that responsibility that often overwhelms politicians and leaders in our own nation, who when they gain some sort of foothold in the political arena, the wall of temptation, uh, that, that wave of temptation overtakes them. And they become embroiled in the things that cause them to compromise. We may read of a vessel at sea overtaken by a storm in which a mountainous wave washes over it and renders it immobile, drowning the engines, destroying the rudder and the wheelhouse so that the vessel lies as a log in a trough of the sea, driven and tossed to and fro, a total wreck. Many men have succumbed to the pride of position, of wealth, of fame, of prosperity, and when faced with the mountainous alpine-like waves of such, they lie useless like a log, listing about wherever the wind may desire, tossed between the waves of worldliness and desire and the knowledge of what is right. How often do we see or hear of this happening in the hearts of men? How much of a temptation would that be for a young person especially, much less an older person, to be placed in such a position of authority and then faced with the temptation to wield that authority in such a manner as to make himself look good. No, that's not what he does. Not Daniel. God set him in this high place and made his feet to be as a hind's feet or as a, 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 a mountain goat. We've seen imagery of goats on the side of a mountain or on a sheer cliff face. I saw one this past week of goats that were scaling a, the wall of a dam and it was near vertical. And yet they're sure-footed. <clears throat> they're secure. They're steadfast. That's exactly what God did for Daniel. He was secure. He had purposed in his heart to be steadfast in the face of this overwhelming wave of responsibility and of power that he could have taken advantage of, and yet he did not. His character was a combination of excellencies, surely a, a sinner before God, but blameless and faultless toward man. 
We stand in awe of Daniel, just as Nebuchadnezzar and the captain of the eunuchs and King Darius or King Cyrus did. We think about that for just a moment. I mentioned earlier how this was not the first time. If we turn over a little bit further in the book to, uh, let's see. There in chapter 4, Daniel chapter 4, he, uh, the king has another uh, vision. Verse 4, he says, I, but Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts of my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Verse 13, he says, uh, and he talks about Daniel prior to this, and, and then... Uh, Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit, lest the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth. Then in verse 16, Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. Then in verse 18, Nebuchadnezzar says, This dream I have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, Daniel, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. And Daniel replies. And he gives God the credit for this. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar what's going to happen, how that he's going to go insane, basically, for a time. And his, his power will be stripped from him. His Hair will grow like feathers and his fingernails like claws. And he says there in verse 26, And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? We've just read about how magnificent this place was. And Nebuchadnezzar takes that, that grandeur to himself and says, I've built all this. And as soon as it was still in his mouth, verse 31, the word was still in the king's mouth. A voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. Imagine as a young person coming into the king's palace and telling him this kind of message. How intimidating that must have been. But Daniel was still steadfast. He still had the character of excellence. He still amazed these people that observed him in an effort to give glory to God. Men in his position of politics and responsibility will usually be chargeable with something or another of wrong performed throughout subor through subordinates, even if he himself should be strictly upright. But here was a man it, re, uh, rendered by grace so upright and so correct in all that he did that nothing could be, even by his enemies, brought against him except concerning his religion. And we know the rest of this story, how that this... Uh, decree was made to worship Nebuchadnezzar. And that uh, those who opposed Daniel 
Actually, this is later on, after, not Debuchadnezzar, but Darius, and how that the governors and the satraps uh, set themselves against Daniel because he was in a position of power. And how that this, because of his faith in God, caused him to be cast into the den of lions. That he had become such a friend, though, to Darius that uh, Darius was happy whenever Daniel was delivered from the, the den of lions. We don't know sometimes what that kind of influence uh, may do for those around us in our own lives when we stand fast for the truth. My brother-in-law, Ryan Frederick, who sends his greetings to you, Frank, by the way, uh, talked to him this past week, and he was talking about his participation in leadership positions in the baseball league in Jacksonville and how that some of the visiting teams wanted to practice or play ball games on Wednesday or Sunday night, and he stood against it. And the commissioner stood with him and said, no, we're not going to do this. We never know sometimes when we're going to be challenged what kind of an influence that we may have. And that's what gives us hope. That's what gives us confidence and steadfastness in the face of Satan trying to throw those fiery darts at us. What kind of an influence we may be for righteousness. Turn over to Daniel chapter 10. Now we'll wrap up the lesson. Daniel chapter 10. Daniel uses similar phrasing here that several other prophets do. We're coming towards, uh, Daniel has been a captive now for quite a number of years. This is towards the end of, of his captivity. Towards the end of that 70 years, Daniel's an old man at this point. Somewhere probably in the, in the neighborhood of around 90 years old. In the third year, chapter 10 and verse 1, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, nor meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now on the twenty-fourth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked. And behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Uphaz. What did Daniel see? He lifted his eyes and looked. We see very similar phrasing in uh, passages such as Isaiah chapter 6. What did Isaiah see? Isaiah saw God. Isaiah saw himself. Isaiah saw his redemption. Isaiah saw his mission. Isaiah saw the judgment. And then Isaiah saw the faithful. But what did Daniel see? Ezekiel also talks about things that he saw in chapter 1 and verse 28. And chronologically speaking, uh, Ezekiel actually comes after Daniel. Uh, Ezekiel speaks in chapter 14 and verse uh, 20, I believe it is, uh, how that Daniel was known as, as a wise man at that point. This is some 15 years or so after Daniel had been taken into captivity. And as a young man, he had already gained a name for himself in his rise to, to power and, and authority. But there in Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 28, uh, Ezekiel says, When I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice of one speaking. That's Ezekiel's response to the majesty and the greatness of God's sovereignty. And Daniel takes that same approach, that same mindset, in a similar fashion here in chapter 10. Let me get back there. 
This is characteristic of Daniel throughout his life, and we see this over and over again. I lifted my eyes and looked, verse 5, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen whose waist was girded with gold of Uphaz. Verse 7, and I, Daniel, saw alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision. But a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore, verse 8, I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me. For my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Verse 10, suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand. Remember, he's going all the way back to chapter 1. Daniel had purposed in his heart prior to being taken captive. And to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. To give strength to Daniel. What did Daniel see? He saw his strength from the Lord. Consider the implications of God's nation being destroyed by an idolatrous nation. How inferior would the God of heaven appear to be to the nations around it? When Nebuchadnezzar took the land of uh, Israel and Judah from them and established his own kingship over that nation, how that their God had not delivered them out of the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. How would that appear to the nations around? How close would it appear that Satan had come to destroying the impression in the mind of men of the one true God forever? How many times do we read in Scripture of how close Satan came down to one descendant of bringing Christ into the world when Athaliah killed her grandchildren. He talks to Pharaoh through Moses and said, For this cause I have raised you up, that my power, my glory, my name might be known throughout all the earth. Neb uh, Mordecai asks Esther in Esther chapter 4 and verse 14 that who knows whether you're come to the, to the nation for such a time as this. Daniel was of that same mindset of showing God's power. He was sent for that reason. This was Daniel's purpose, to show Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar even admitted three different times throughout this book that Daniel's God was the one true God. Darius did the same thing in chapter 6 and verse 26. This was the impression that it left on these men, how that a young person in the face of this much adversity could still be faithful to God, could still retain that steadfastness and know that God was still sovereign even when they did not uh, bow down to those men who had the ability to take their lives. We think about men who have walked with God in the past. Enoch walked with God and was not for God took him. Abraham was called a friend of God. David was called a man after God's own heart. Even though he was more faulty in character, he still enjoyed a unique nearness and fellowship with God. We see that same thing in Daniel, that spiritual eye that sees God in the face of all of this adversity. Daniel, through all of these prophecies that were about to be revealed to him, saw the world for generations to come. That's what he saw. But he also saw God's providence, God's majesty, God's sovereignty. 
Isaiah talks about how he saw God high, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Ezekiel says that he fell on his face when he saw the Lord. Job chapter 42, verses 5 and 6, Job talks about after he has questioned God and God has given him this response that leaves Job speechless, he says, now my eyes see you. Job 42, verses 5 and 6. We read in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, of how faith comes by hearing and that hearing comes through the word of God. That's how we see with our spiritual eye today. That's Daniel's spiritual eye that's focused on what God said. He had purposed in his heart to do what God had said. 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 9, Eli tells Samuel, listen, when the next time this, this incident occurs and, and someone comes to you and says, Samuel. So Samuel says, speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. That ought to be us. That was the mindset of Daniel. That was Daniel's spiritual eye that he had. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. I want to do what's right. In the face of this great king who has the ability to take my life from me, I'm still going to do what's right. I'm still going to live righteously. Perhaps this evening there's one who's been thinking with the spiritual eye and hearing the word of the Lord and addressing concerns about his or her own deformity of heart. Perhaps there's someone here who has something that is pressing them. No, greatly beloved, this is a blessing and not a curse. Something that causes us distress oftentimes can help us grow. We who are loved from before the earth began are loved of heaven. Daniel talks, uh, Daniel writes here about how that this one who came to him in chapter 10 and verse 19, uh, he becomes fearful. Back in the previous verses, I became speechless. Verse, verse 15, one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, my Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me and I've retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. Sometimes we get discouraged. Sometimes we look at the world around us and it's easy for us to think that Satan is winning. When we look at our nation and we see the things that we're involved in and see the, the troubles that are all around us, it's easy to get discouraged. Verse 18, then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. That's the message that Daniel gives to us tonight. We can have peace in the face of trial, in the face of temptation. God has never yet lied to us. Why then should we doubt him? Daniel didn't, lie, didn't doubt the Lord. He knew that if he lived faithfully, he was going to be blessed, whatever that may have looked like. How can we teach others when we ourselves doubt what God has done for us? It's okay to question, but it's not okay to lose faith. A song, a sweet song of God's blessings is what should stream forth from us when we recognize God's blessings. Men looked to Daniel for strength. And when things seemed to be going the worst, God was still 
at his best. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12 for just a moment and we'll finish this up. What does obedience of sons include? If we're thinking of ourselves as children of God, and we should if we are, if we are obedient to Him, if we've done what is necessary, what does that include? <clears throat> chapter 11 talks about how those of this great hall of fame of faith basically did all of these great things that kept them listening to what God said. They, because they listened to what God said, they were blessed above and beyond measure. Therefore, chapter 12 and verse 1, since we also are, uh, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens." And scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as, as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more re readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he, speaking of God, for our profit that we may be partakers of His holiness. No, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That training by it takes us all the way back to Daniel chapter 1, how he had purposed in his heart. He'd allowed his mind to be trained by the word of the Lord so that when the temptation arose, the decision was already made. There was no cause for concern. There was no need for him to worry. God was still going to take care of him. And that's exactly what happened. So that we can know, we can have faith as children, as obedient children, that we also can take comfort in that. That God is going to provide for us. What did Daniel see? If you look at <clears throat> uh, chapter uh, 12 there in verse 18, the Hebrews writer continues and says, For you have not come to the mountain which may be touched, and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest. He says, This is not what you're looking forward to. But verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. What did Daniel see? Daniel knew, and he saw that he was not coming to that blackness, that darkness that burned with fire and tempest, but to that Mount Zion, that innumerable company of angels. As he received those prophecies and he received those visions and he looked for generations to come down the road, that's what he saw, that God was still faithful. God was going to redeem man through the promise of Christ. And that's what he's done for us. And if you've not been a partaker of Christ's precious blood, then there's no hope, unfortunately. We talked about Romans 10, 17 earlier, how that faith comes by hearing 
and hearing by the Word of God. That's what you've done tonight. If you have heard it and you've listened to it, let it touch your heart and believe it. Take action upon that. Resolve to live faithfully as Daniel did. No matter what your area of life is, what stage of life you are in, by confessing the name of Christ to others, repenting of the things that are amiss in your life and being baptized in the watery grave of baptism, washed to walk a new creature, to remain and live faithfully before Him all your days. If you've not done these things, you need to do so. If you've done them but have fallen away, please come back as together we stand and as we sing. them from pity from sin and the grave we pour the erring one lift up the fallen tell them of jesus the mighty to save rescue the perishing care for the dying jesus is merciful jesus will save Rescue the perishing, duty demands it. String for thy labor the Lord will provide. Back to the narrow way, patiently win them. Tell the poor wanderer our Savior has died. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Jesus is merciful, Jesus will save. Please be seated. The Lord's Supper has been left for those who did not have the opportunity to take this morning. If you would, you can come down during this next song that will help prepare our minds. Uh, please turn to number 208, number 208. 